Good morning, Grace Church. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Brooklyn, God's favorite borough of New York City. Um, it's good to be with you. I've actually, some of you may know this, I've been, this is the ninth year that I've been up here and able to come and do Pulpit Supply. Uh, we started coming here nine years ago, uh, so it's great to be back with you again. Uh, for those who do follow us and pray for our ministry from time to time, I would ask you this year, we, uh, we're, in, we're about 12 blocks from where the New York Police Department officers were killed last year, were assassinated. Uh, so there's, we're in a, in, a, in a work where there's lots of racial reconciliation needs. And uh, we've been waiting, and we just raised money, and we hired uh, a partner in ministry for me who uh, is an African-American uh, pastor born and raised in the Bronx. And he is moving next week. And he started with us, but he's moving to the neighborhood with his family. Uh, so just pray for our year. I'm excited. We finally have this milestone where we can together model from the leadership and for our people this work. So pray for us in that. And, uh, and thank you for having us out uh, this week and next. I do have, I am here two Sundays, which is fun because, uh, at least fun for me, maybe not so fun for you. But uh, I get to stretch my legs a little bit. And what I decided to do um, is to make it a little bit of a, a tiny mini-series, uh, if you will. And I want to explore together what does it mean to have faith. So if you're exploring Christianity, uh, this is a good chance to understand exactly what it's about. And if you've been a Christian for a while, just to refresh ourselves, what does it mean to be a person of faith? Uh, and I had a preaching professor put it this way, um, that sometimes he, he told us, he's like, when you preach, sometimes it's better to uh, preach from the poles, he called it. Things that seem to be polar opposites, if you will. Uh, you might call it preaching, preaching paradoxes, if you will. But sometimes the best way to tell the truth is not to take what seems to be uh, polar opposite truths and try to reconcile them and try to make them fit and to sort of nuance everything so you don't go too far one direction. Sometimes it's better just to, to preach the poles, to just preach the edges of the paradox uh, and let those truths hold their own weight, you will, and then let that tension sort of live out. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, the polls are this week and next week. This week we're going to look uh, at a faith that rests and this week, next week at a faith that works. And you'll actually see um, that show up at the end of our passage here. So let me read to you this passage for this week. Ephesians chapter 2, it's there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, or page 976 in your uh, pulpit Bible, pew Bible. This is uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church, a new church plant in Ephesus. He says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and thank you now that we can respond to it and meditate upon it. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to your word to us. Amen. I've been thinking about a lot of things this summer. I've been thinking some about just what it means to grow up. Um, uh, as I said, I've lived in New York City now for nine years, uh, and we just got back for the first time in six years from Washington State, where all of my family is. We haven't been there for six years. We've since added two children through adoption to our family. Uh, my older twins have grown up six years older, and, and most of the family hadn't met them. And so I went home, and I had this strange experience where, mo- and maybe you'll resonate with some of this, most of my life as an adult uh, has been self-made. That's not exactly true, but it feels like it's self-made. It's like, who am I? Well, I'm going to go and study. I'm going to go and work. I'm going to make this world for myself. I'm going to make a family. I'm going to have a place. I'm going to be a New Yorker. I'm going to be a church planter. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you go home, and I'm sitting around uh, cousins mostly from the country who are farmers, and they don't ask a question about my work. They don't ask a question about my hobbies. They do not want to talk about New York City. They don't have any interest in it because it would just lead to politics or something, right? And so really all I am to them is just the kid that we used to play together and that's all they want. Remember the time we did this and grandpa's doing this and here's what's happening with the farm and those sorts of things. And it was this strange feeling because I was like, wow, for a moment, my identity is actually bigger than me and given, you know? Most of my life is this identity that I build and my destiny, whatever it's going to be, feels like it's up to me and it feels like so much pressure, doesn't it? When it feels like... Your identity and your future depends on your work. It's difficult. And if you understand what that feels like, that pressure to craft your identity, to craft your place in the world and to secure your future, uh, then you may be familiar with the word uh, transform, right? And there, there are many other uh, words uh, that would, the synonyms basically for transform. But transform is the one I want to use today. If you're trying to get to a future, then there are certain things about your life that you want to transform, right? You want an identity, you don't yet have it. You want a future, you don't yet have it. And so you're you're constantly being promised ways that you can transform your life, and you're constantly pursuing ways that you might transform or change your life. You might want to transform your body, okay? I know I do. When I take my shirt off at the beach this week, I'm going to want to transform it even more, right? You may think about your career and you want to transform or make a change in your career. It it may be more significantly your relationships, right? It could be your bank account. It could be your hobbies. It could just be the kind of citizen that you are in the world. All these ways that you're trying to figure out what it means to secure your identity and your future and ways to transform to get there. And it's, it's just so much work if you think about it to maintain all of these things, all these hats, right? Because constantly you're told, you have to do this. I mean, honestly, if you want to transform your body, you have to do this and that. And don't do that, right? And then two months later, they change their mind and tell you, do this and don't do that. And there's so many rules for everything, uh, it's just difficult. Uh, I was jogging. I like to jog around New York City. I was jogging uh, last year, I remember. And uh, as I was, I was running around, and I usually wake up in the morning ready to go with lots of sort of anxiety and all the things I have to do and not do today and the ways I have to go and transform, you know, uh, my life. And so I go jogging just to kind of burn off that steam. I was, I was trying to relax a little bit. And I remember running by a billboard, and someone had written in big graffiti over this whole empty billboard this, this phrase. It said, Master your heart. And I thought... Thank you for today's despair. Uh, 
Because that's exactly the problem. It's impossible. My heart is saying, transform, change, do this, don't do that, attain this, have this identity, and all of this, and this, just master that. And I thought, you don't know your heart, you know? Uh, that's exactly the problem. And so there I was despairing at the end of my run, rather than the beginning. And the problem is, is that if you're familiar with Christianity at all, Christian offers of transformation are often no better. I mean, there are really good things, and the things I'm about to describe are good things, but here's some of them. Christian offers of transformation tend to look like this. Perhaps you're a little bit more of a, a sort of historical or liturgical tradition, and so you adopt a rule of prayer. So you, you're going to take prayer in the morning, lunch, and evening. You know, you're going you're to follow this set thing, and that's going to help get into your life. And I follow a rule of prayer. So that's something, a way that you can transform your life, you know. Some of us maybe are more on the relational sort of uh, intimate side, and so you're just constantly seeking what, what this indescribable sort of passionate intimacy with God. It could just be daily devotionals. It could be more outward focused, like this, this idea that we need to evangelize others and, and help people know Jesus. And it may be social justice. It may be personal holiness. It may be finding your spiritual gifts and putting them into practice. It could be faithful church membership. It could be your theology. Master your heart. Christian, master your heart. Despair. Do you know this cycle at all? I want to adopt all of these ways of Christian transformation. I try and I try and I try. Despair. Let me ask you a question. This is rhetorical. You just leave it in your head. I just described these things. How would you, if one of your friends said to you, if you're a Christian and someone said to you, Okay, you said my life can change with God. Give me one word. How do you summarize Christian transformation? What is it that's unique about Christianity that is the engine of transformation and change in this world? Give me one word. What would you say to that friend? I'm going to give you my answer today. Here's the word. Relax. Relax. Is that the first time you've ever heard that from a pastor? Relax. Not an escapist spa day kind of relaxation or a holiday adventure or for me, summer here this week, right? As good as those things are. Not really that kind of relaxation, but something deeper, something deep that's in your bones, something that's deep down in your heart. Something that looks more like rest. Real rest. See, the thing is, is this is the uniqueness. This is the genius of Christianity. No other religion says relax, rest. No other self-help scheme says the engine of transformation is to rest and, and relax. And I think that this word might be the key. And in order to truly find real like at the heart level, relaxation and rest. I think there are some things we can meditate upon this morning together, things that we can remember that will help us find true rest and relaxation in order that we might be transformed. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this first point, but just know that this is the backdrop to what we're going to understand today. I want to look at a few things of what it means to be human, okay? And the first one that we're not going to spend a lot of time on, it's important, is the backdrop. It's important to our text is that when God made human beings, he made them with what I'm going to call original dignity. 
It's a great dignity. He, he showered all of his creative genius, all of his love, all of his attention, all of his beautiful and wondrous attributes. In fact, what Christianity calls the glory of God, all was put upon men and women when they were made. That's how he designed us. And we still have that original dignity in hearing within us, okay? So we were made with original dignity. But what I want us to see is sort of two movements through our text this morning is that that original dignity is totally, this doesn't mean 100%, it just means in every part of it, in every part of it, every aspect, is pervasive, if you will, is broken as well. Every part of our original dignity is broken in places. You can still see the glory, you can see the dignity, but we're broken all the way through in everything. And so the restoration process, the transformation process, if you will, has to take uh, account of everything. And what I want us to see this week and next is that that transformation process is going to look like resting for us and like working. We'll look at working next week. This week. Let us dig into resting. Let me, let me start here. This is a true story. If you've been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there's a sculpture there done by the Renaissance master Tullio Lombardo. It's a sculpture of the biblical figure of Adam, and it's sculpted from solid marble. Have any of you seen this? I'm not even sure I have. It's life-size, so it's six foot three, a good bit taller than me. It was made 500 years ago in Venice, but now it resides there in the city at the Metropolitan Museum, and it's standing very, very still, as sculptures are wont to do, right? (laughs) Except when they don't. Because in 2002, on a Sunday night, after the museum closed, the plywood pedestal on which the sculpture of Adam was standing, it, it buckled. And the sculpture tumbled over onto the floor and exploded into hundreds of pieces. The head came off. There were at least 28 recognizable pieces and hundreds of smaller fragments. Philippe de Montebello, the Mets director, called it about the worst thing that can happen to a museum, I'll say. The sculpture was ruined. Now maybe... To take the metaphor, brokenness is often an accident. And maybe you know what it's like to just be in this world a little bit and you're broken and it feels like it was accidental, like it wasn't your fault and it happened to you and often that's true. But also, if you know the Mona Lisa over there at the Louvre, it's in bulletproof glass because some brokenness is not always an accident. Sometimes we mar one another intentionally and so whether you have accidentally been broken or intentionally broken and most likely both or intentionally broken other or accidentally broken others the point here is that just like this sculpture Adam we're broken and strangely enough what I want to say is relax you're broken verses 1 and 2 put it this way talking to all of us you all we were dead in our trespasses and our sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What Paul says here is, you were dead. That's really broken. Dead because we broke 
our relationship with God, dead because we broke God's holy laws, his design for us, and the way we were to maintain that glory and to flourish here in the creation. We've broken that, and because we've broken that, we've broken ourselves. Something is broken within us. It's like that wine stain on the white couch you just can't ever get out no matter how much you do. That word that you can't unsay no matter how much you say you're sorry is out there and it changed a relationship. There is something in us we can't fix. I mean, we really can't fix it. The problem here is that we often think we're half alive. We're not fully dead. We're half alive and so we can be fooled into thinking that we're like Pinocchio and we can just turn ourselves into a boy. Right? We can come back to life again. But we can't. The Bible says we're not sick in our sins, that we're dead in our sins. This pervasive brokenness, and here's what this means. You are so broken, you can't, to fix yourself, to transform yourself, you can't trust your heart. So like the rest of you is messed up and your heart and your, your desires are pure. No, you can't trust your heart. You can't trust your mind. You can't trust your mind to think your way out of it. You can't trust your discipline, your regiments, the strength of your will. Not when it comes to truly transforming. Sure, we can lose weight. We can make life more of a vacation. You can get a better job. You can even get a new face nowadays. But you can't become whole again as you were originally made in your own strength. Instead, we're just taking these broken pieces of our identity and our hearts and our minds and our lives, and we're constantly trying to move them around to find a a pleasing feng shui, right? But even those attempts often make things worse. Uh, John Bunyan, this writer, described it as you have this dusty room with this furniture on it, and all you try to do is move around the furniture, and it just kicks the dust up, you know? All these attempts to make ourselves better often just makes things worse, The Apostle Paul said that someday someone's going to come and teach you the doctrine of demons. And you're like, whoa, that sounds nasty. What is it? And he says, they're going to come on and come to tell you that if you just impose these ascetic self-disciplines on yourself and and be really religious, then you'll be better. And he's like, that's the doctrine of demons. That's the course of the spirit of the air, the prince of darkness. Again, if we were just sick or maimed a little bit, we might have hope and we could get busy working, but if we're dead, then what? Then we can stop trying so hard at such futile efforts. For real transformation, we first need to know we're dead as a statue, right? Or a person who's sound asleep. You may be thinking, okay, then what? You're telling me to sit there and be broken? To give up? Yeah. Relax the way a dead person is relaxed or a sleeping person or a statue. That's the first most important thing to hear. To really relax in who you truly are and in your inability. And then Paul goes on. Verse 4. But God... You are dead, 
You have no power to fix yourself. Stop trying. Relax. But God. Such a small word, you know. But and therefore. This little word in the Greek. I think it's actually just three letters if I remember. This word we use in the English language. You know, I'd like to stay longer with you, but I have to get up for work tomorrow. I would really, really like to buy that, but I can't afford it right now. We think you're a great candidate for this position, but we're going to have to go with someone else. And that word always sort of flipped the script. We think we're going somewhere, and then you bring that word into it, and it flips the script. It transforms the situation to something new. But God. And think how many of us usually insert that word, if we ever say but God, we insert it into a sentence uh, to make God more in the opposition to something good. So it sounds like this. Again, if you're like me. I'd really, really like to follow this passion of mine, you know, but God, da-da-da-da-da. I'm doing the best I can, but I wonder if God sees it that way. Right? This text flips all of this completely around. It transforms the situation. It reads more like this. I don't know how anyone can love me. I don't even love myself. I'm so broken. But God. I'm so messed up, I don't know if I can ever be healed. But God. I've got all these doubts. But God, I'm not sure I'm ready to live the way that I think God is calling me to, but God. See, every roadblock between us and God, the real roadblocks, the ones that we put up, the ones that others put up, the ones we imagine are there, everything that stands between us and God's love is taken down in this verse. But God. And there's a specifically Christian word for this, what we're describing here, this but God scenario. And it's the real reason why you can relax and not just relax into your deadness and relax into your brokenness, but instead relax into transformation. Through that, the Christian word is grace. Grace, the name of your church. A good word, right? A Christian word. If you're like me, one of the problems I have is you tend to think of grace as like this substance. It's amazing, whatever it is, this thing, right? But it's not a substance. It's not some metaphysical, ethereal thing. It is simply a relational posture. The word literally means favor. It's a relational posture of God toward us. And it's saying that God, his posture towards us, it used to be one of wrath, is now one of grace. When we were dead and did nothing to deserve it, we have this free lavish, immeasurable, unearned favor and honor and embrace and acceptance from God. And if grace is real, then you can relax because it does other things like make us alive in Christ. I'll read the rest of those those verses right there, not all of them. Verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy... Why? Because we were so sad to see? No, because of the great love with which he loved us. 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's saying here that we are naturally, in our own strength, because of the brokenness done to our original dignity, we are impoverished, actually, in mercy to one another. But God is rich in it. We are sort of small in our unselfish love toward others. But He, God, is full of great love. We don't often honor or favor others, but God graces and favors us. We can't save ourselves, but God has saved us. We were dead in sins, but God made us alive with Him, just as alive as Jesus was when He was raised from the tomb. And these words, I know, we read them, saved, grace, trespasses, mercy, heavenly places. These are very Christian words. If you're investigating Christianity, you may be like, yeah, I mean, I'm only catching part of this. I got the relaxed thing, but I mean, that word I understand. But some of these words are so Christian. And if you are a Christian, you've heard them so many times, sometimes they just kind of fly by you, you know. What do they mean for us? What does grace, stick with that one. What does it actually mean for us? What is God's personal, relational favor, his posture of favor and honor towards us mean? I'll read you verses 6 and 7 first. Jesus, God in his grace, raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him, that is Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is where it gets interesting. Think about your identity, think about your future, all those self-made things I was talking about. The first thing to know is that grace is a future place that God has taken you to. And it's a real one, it's a real place. It's our world restored as a paradise. And here's what that means. According to this passage, you're not actually, truly, or most fundamentally right here in this room right now, broken and dead in your trespasses. That's not what you... I mean, you are, but you're not most fundamentally here in this room broken right now. At least according to God and Christianity and the Bible and theology, what's more true of you right now is that you are right now in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. That is more true of your ultimate identity and your ultimate destiny than you are here now broken in this room. It says he has raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's who you truly are now. And often we think of salvation, of being saved, like being in, this, uh, being in the Bahamas during winter. Or for some of you, for me this week, being in a place like this for this week in the summer. That salvation is this final escape that we'll have from everything. But my friend, uh, he's not actually my friend, I have met him, but uh, one of my mentors, someone I love to read, uh, bishop and pastor and theologian uh, Tom Wright puts it this way. Salvation, we might say grace, our future grace, 
It's not going to heaven. Instead, it's being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. The New Testament is full of hints, indications, and downright assertions that this salvation isn't just something we have to wait for in the long-distance future. We can enjoy it here and now. And he says, here's what this means. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbors yourself, all of this will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. No. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. And here's what I want you to see. If this is our future, and it's assured to us in some ways, it's, it's at least theologically true that it is our present now. Okay? It's more long-lasting, it's more solid, it's more secure than our brokenness is. Then you can relax and let grace transform this world now, not just the future one. And what that means is that this world is not so much a workplace or a, a jungle to be dominated uh, or a, a place to craft our identity or to, to hammer out our own destiny and to survive, hopefully, as the fittest against the others. Instead, grace makes this world more of a playground. And if you've ever seen kids when they forget who they are and they're on some kind of playground, you know that they're relaxed, even though they're working hard, right? They're at rest. They're, they're outside of their minds. They're outside of their They're just in their bodies and they're in the place and they're having rest. They're relaxed. They're full of joy. And that's what I want to say, that grace makes this world even now a playground. Now, verse 10, we, we're not our own work. Your identity, your destiny it's not your own work. We are God's work. We are His workmanship. He is crafting you, your now, your future. And He has created us in Jesus for even more good works, which God has already prepared for us, that we should just walk into them, really. It's as if God has set up an elaborate game of play in this world and you just get to walk into it and enjoy it and in some sense there is no failure in God. It can be like kids on the playground here. And so relax. You don't have to drum up things to do. You don't have to validate your worth. You don't have to make your existence seem more special than everyone else's. You can't fix the world. You really shouldn't even try too hard. Don't break your back doing that. You can't usher in the new heavens and the new earth. You can't mold a perfectly redemptive community here at this church. You can't justify Jesus' death for you. You don't have to be a good little child for God to like you. You don't have to get better according to yours or other standards. You don't and can't earn a place at God's table. But God's doing the work.
He's prepared them. He wants you to be at play and to play a part in his work. So just go live your life. He'll take care of it. He's prepared it beforehand. He'll take care of the rest. Relax in the beautiful good works that he will drop in your lap. We were dead, but we've been made alive. And he is making all things new. Let's say again at verse 8 here. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the center of all Christianity. This is the transformation in one word. I'm going I'm to give you my translation of this verse. It's pretty literal if you string out the Greek and make it sound ugly. By the unearned favor of God, you have been saved. And that is, means every little shard, every piece of your humanity, your mind, your heart, your will, that's being found and it's being restored. That's what salvation means. Through faith, and that doesn't mean you keeping the right beliefs or, or being so faithful instead, but entrusting yourself like a statue and trusting yourself to someone else to fix you. By faith you've been saved, and this is not your own doing. It's not also something you can undo. It is the gift of God. So just in closing, okay, this was an interesting sermon. What should I do now? Just sit here and apply this truth to myself like a mantra over and over again? Are we kind of doing an Eastern thing here? And I say, no. Go live your life. Go do things. Go work. Go play. But do so as one with the free and unlimited favor and joy, the rejoicing over you by a doting Heavenly Father who is with you. That's relaxation. When life and even Christianity is not another effort, but instead it's a, it's a play day. That statue, Adam, at the Met, it took longer than anyone expected to fix it. In fact, it took so long that people began to say it couldn't be done. I think it was a decade or more. I can't even remember. I didn't write it down. But the director of the Met was determined. He wanted to see Adam put back together again. Uh, and they did eventually fix it. And they asked him why he went to such lengths to do this. And here's what the director of the Met said. I quote, To leave it in a broken state would have been to choose its accident as its defining historical moment. Isn't that a smart, great quote? No, 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 we're not going to let its accident, its brokenness, be its defining historical moment. We wanted to restore it. Friends, what defines you is not any accident. It's not your brokenness or your efforts, your personal efforts at restoring yourself. What defines you is the God who loves you enough to save you now and in the future, to restore you to your original dignity. Next week, we'll talk about wisdom from Psalm 1, the process, the path of transformation, how we discern which works are from God and and which maybe aren't so much. And that's where we start talking about putting our faith to work a little bit. But for now, live this other side of the pole. Keep it in tension. Let the paradox be at work. Relax. God is here. 
He's here in grace. He's here in good works. And he's prepared a feast for you to enjoy. So take a deep breath. Sit back. Let him work to serve you. And in just a moment, let's eat together. Okay. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us now. And I do mean it literally, but not only literally. Also, metaphorically, metaphysically, I pray that you would help us to take a deep breath. Help us to sit back, help us to relax, help us to allow you to feed us, to strengthen us, to give us all that we need for life and for health and for salvation. We pray it, that you would do it as part of the immeasurable riches you prepared for us through Jesus. Give us a taste of that now, we pray in his name. Amen.